was governor in Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let's pray together this morning. Father, again, we come to this glorious text, this glorious narrative of how the Lord Jesus Christ was born, how he did indeed leave the hallways of heaven, eternity, to come and put on flesh and live amongst men. And Father, we thank you for this glor these glorious truths that are here. And uh, Lord, we pray as we hear the word expounded this morning concerning this glorious text that you will indeed sink it deep down into our hearts and into our ears and deep down into our minds, that the Spirit of God will just catechize us as we, as we looked last week, that it will be sound deep into our ears. And Father, we thank you for your glorious plan that you would indeed save sinners by offering up the sinless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that this morning. And now, Lord, we pray you'll give the preacher much power, much strength as he preaches the word this morning. Father, we pray again as we always do, again for the believers who are here, that this message will indeed be edifying unto them. And those who are lost, those who are the lost sheep of God, that they will hear today, that they will be convicted of their sin, that they will indeed turn their eyes unto the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on him and be saved. And Father, now we ask these things in our Lord and Savior's glorious name. The Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This morning, we will have a special message. It is going to be entitled, The Birth of Christ, Christmas, and the Regulative Principle. I, sh I should have given Mike this information. I didn't. We actually won't exposit Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. But uh, we're going to look at that text this morning in our scripture reading. The reason why I wanted to do that was to just introduce us to this subject. But we want to look at the subject of the birth of Christ, Christmas, and the regulative principle. Now, just an introduction. During this time of the year, we know that many are getting ready to celebrate the holiday of Christmas. It is for many a busy and exciting time of the year. In many countries, Christians view Christmas primarily as a religious holiday 
And oftentimes in countries that are primarily not Christian, the people think of Christmas as simply a religious holiday. And oftentimes Christmas church services are targeted by terrorists and targeted by all sorts of different people who want to kill Christians and purge Christianity out of their countries. In America, there definitely is a religious aspect to the holiday. There are special church services and a remembrance of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for many, that is the the main reason for the holiday. At the same time, many Christians loathe what is viewed as the secularization of Christmas in our country. And an effort oftentimes, as you know, every year is made to uh, keep Christ in Christmas, as it is said in, you know, the common phrase, we've all heard it probably a million times, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. And so oftentimes there's a great effort made to don't secularize Christmas, as it is said, but keep it Christian. Then, of course, there are those few Christians who do not partake in the holiday because of their belief that the holiday of Christmas has pagan origins, and so they don't want anything Uh, to do with that either. It is also a time of the year when we see, and I think we all know this, right? We see in our own country a dead traditionalism where many who never go to any church services at all will come once or maybe twice, right? Christmas, Easter. That's the time when a lot of the churches fill up when it's just a dead formal traditionalism, some of the remnants of that old Christian past, you might say, that we once had in this country. It is also a time of superstition for young children, as basically they are, most children are lied to and told that a jolly, white-bearded, chubby old man by the name of Santa Claus flies on a sleigh pulled by eight reindeer And somehow he goes to every home of every child throughout the world in one night. It's amazing what young children will believe. And he leaves special gifts for those who have been good and coal for those who have been bad. We all know the fairy tale of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, of course, who was a hero on that foggy Christmas Eve who led the sleigh and led Santa and the reindeer and he could lead the way with his red, shiny nose. That is taught. They're taught that Santa lives at the North Pole. He comes down a chimney, and oftentimes I think children will ask, well, what if we don't have a chimney? Well, then he comes in the front door. Or, you know, when Santa Claus comes to town, you know, it's small towns, big towns, you know, you come and it's Santa Claus Day, and they sit on his lap, tell Santa what they want. A lot of times if you're in a small town, you have a lot of trouble because people will see oftentimes the beard comes down and they recognize who it is. Well, that's so-and-so. That's that's not, we know who that is. Well, he's one of his elves. You know, he's one of his helpers. And so that's oftentimes what they are told. Now, there's many who have warnings about this and great concern because they have a fear that this teaches children at a young age a works-based salvation. You do good, you're rewarded. You do bad, you're not. Anyway, that, that concern is there for many. But also the concern is, is that if you tell young children like this a lie, and as they get older and they find out that that was not the truth, oftentimes they begin to ask, well, what about God? Is that true? It's very unhealthy. So many who celebrate Christmas and who have Christmas trees, exchange gifts, they leave the Santa superstition out. Others leave the tree out as well, but they celebrate the rest. So there's different ways in which this is done. And then finally, we know it is a time of great busyness for many businesses and companies as the sales go way up. It's a big time for the economy. That is all going on this time of the year. So all of this is true concerning this season. Because of this, the elders, at least at this church, thought that it would be good just to take one Lord's Day and have a simple study of the birth of Christ, Christmas, and the regulative principle. It was about a month ago now that we had a special message given about Halloween. And the title was, Why I Don't Celebrate Halloween. And Mike went back to a lot of the originations of the holiday. We talked about demonic roots and pagan roots. And really, that's pretty obvious. I mean, how many of us in here would think it's okay to dress our children like let's say, Islamic heroes 
and you go to people's houses and ask for candy. Well, no one would want to do that. Well, what's the difference between dressing them up like demons or skeletons or you know, Superman or whatever? That's pretty obvious, I think, what Mike gave that week. We just came past the Thanksgiving holiday, and really, it's an interesting tradition because Thanksgiving really has Christian origins, and it, it is so Christian in its foundation, and it's so anti-secular because you think of this. How can a secular humanist be thankful for anything? I mean, if you're just an accident, if you're just the result of an evolutionary process, if you're just stardust, who do you have to thank for anything? And what is being thankful? So really, that is very Christian. Now, Christmas is different than both of these. And there is, I know, different practices in this church. Many celebrate it. Some don't. Some are kind of in between. They do a little bit, but not everything. Maybe they don't have a tree or something like that. So it is good and edifying for us to at least take a look at this, some history, some Bible, and study this subject. So it's not an expositional sermon, but we're going to just have three simple points according to the title that we gave it. So the first point, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, brethren, it goes without saying that the birth of Christ was a very highly anticipated event. Really, one could say all the way going back to the book of Genesis. Throughout all the Old Testament, we see promises concerning this coming one. Just think about after the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What is the promise that God gave there? He said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, there's a lot in that verse that we're not going to cover. You could have a whole sermon on that verse. But one of the truths that is in that verse is that there would be a seed who comes and crushes the woman's head and would be particularly the seed of a woman. There's some hints there already at a virgin birth. But even there from the beginning, there would be an anticipation of this one who would come. Genesis 49.10, listen to what Jacob says to his sons. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall, be the, ga- shall the gathering of the people be. So that's when Jacob is telling his sons what's going to happen to their descendants in the future. And already there in the book of Genesis, we have the promise and the hope of Shiloh who will come. And obviously then all the people would come under his authority. The location of his birth is given in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It's foretold. Listen to that familiar verse. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of these shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, and whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. So the location would be Bethlehem, but notice also the deity of this one is given. That information is given. He is one that goes back from everlasting, not just a regular man who will be born. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 speaks of the virgin birth. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So truly this one would be God with us, virgin born. And again, When we take that back to Genesis, this being the woman's seed, we see how this all fits together. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, another familiar verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Many titles there given, but notice again, the deity of this one is clearly expressed this one would be god dwelling among us distinct from the father and yet sent by the father even this one prophetically speaks in isaiah chapter 48 verse 16 listen to what he says now the lord god god there's in all caps the lord yahweh and his spirit hath sent me so there you already have the hint of the trinity three persons in the Old Testament. 
Now, when we come to the New Testament in John chapter 1, we read that this eternal word, this eternal Son, distinct from the Father, is deity. You see that in verses 1 through 3. And then down in verse 14, what do we read? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the eternal Lagos, the eternal Son. This is God entering into his creation, becoming a man, thus being the God-man, one person, two natures, both deity and humanity. The hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, puts this forth, these truths forth very beautifully. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, right? Hail incarnate deity. Biblical theology. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Paul writes it in this way. Concerning Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. These are all glorious passages in reference to the birth of Jesus Christ, God who became flesh and dwelt among us, who came to save his people from their sins. Brethren, this glorious reality ought to be a reality in our everyday lives, in light of what we see in the word. The eternal one came into the world to save sinners like you and me. In Luke's gospel, we looked at Joseph and Mary and the birth of Christ in our scripture reading, verses 1 through 20. We saw the shepherds coming to see the babe after the angels appeared to them. What I want us to do here, just for a moment, is look at the acts of obedience of Joseph and Mary concerning Jesus and concerning the birth and what happened afterwards in just verses 21 through 24 briefly. First of all, notice their obedience to the law of God in their circumcision of the child. Look at verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus. First of all, notice, Joseph and Mary were obedient in circumcising their son. The command of circumcision for the people of God was given, first of all, in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. It was there that we see the Abrahamic covenant more expounded upon. That is, God came into covenant with Abraham and said that his descendants, that he would have a seed, that they would be a blessing to the nations. We know that. Verses 11 and 12 say this, And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. So there's the command given there to Abraham and those who would be in the Abrahamic covenant. This command was also brought into the old covenant, the covenant made at Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. That command still was to be for the people of God there in the old covenant. We see it repeated just for example, Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 3. And again, when you read that verse, you'll find it was to be done on the eighth day. This circumcision was a mark of Israel's national identity. And it was also an object lesson. It was to remind us of the need for spiritual circumcision that everyone needs in order to enter the kingdom. And it would remind us of the need for a new heart, a heart that no longer loves sin, but a heart now that loves God and wants to keep his commandments. Of course, now we know Jesus did not have a sin nature. He was virgin born, and that was very important because that corrupt seed wouldn't pass on to him. But Jesus was completely sinless. He didn't have to have that object lesson taught to him. But we remember Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 tells us that Jesus was born under the law. And so it was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness. And of course, as Joseph and Mary were obedient to the commands of the Lord, obedient to the law, they made sure to circumcise him on the eighth day. So that's number one. Number two, notice their obedience in the naming of the child. Again, verse 21, 
And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, it was the custom at the time for the child to be named at the circumcision, that is the male child. Here we see that the angel, just as he told Joseph, this is what you are to name the child, we can read that in Matthew chapter 1. Here they were obedient in giving him that exact name just as they were commanded. Matthew one twenty one. we read there, Joseph was told, She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That name is fitting for the one who would save his people from their sins. Jesus, you know, it's, just, it's the Greek name for the Hebrew Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So that's the name that was to be given to the Savior of sinners. So we see their obedience in the circumcision of the child, their obedience in the naming of the child. Number three, we see their obedience in Mary's purification. Look, if you would, at Luke chapter 2 there, verse 22. It says, And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem. Now, what is that talking about there, Mary's purification? Because if you're just... Obviously, a, a student of the Bible, and you read through the New Testament a lot, you might think, what, what is that about? Well, that goes back again to the law that was given in the book of Leviticus. I'm just going to turn there and read for you Leviticus chapter 12. Listen to verses 1 through 5 as the law is given for this purification for a woman who would give birth to a child. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed... And born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days. According to the days of the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So there again, circumcised on the eighth day. Verse 4, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. So it would be forty days total for a male child. She shall touch no hallowed thing nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. And if she bear a maid child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days. So for a male child, it would be 40 days. For a female, it would be 80 days. Just for the sake of time, not going to explain why the, the difference with 40 days and 80 days there, but nevertheless, you see the law. So after the birth of a child, the woman was considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. The cleansing she needed represented, of course, again, the need of purifying from sin. That's a symbol for all believers. And during this time, the woman could not touch anything sacred, and she was not allowed to enter the temple. After Jesus' circumcision, it would be some weeks until Joseph and Mary would then go to Jerusalem to finish this process of purification. After that process, then we read in verses 22, 23, and 24. Again, I'll read verse 22. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So we see here again their obedience in the purification of Mary. And also here we see in verse 23 their obedience in the presentation of the child Jesus in the temple. This didn't have to be done in the temple, but nevertheless, it could be done in the temple. That was also in obedience to the law. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 13 verses 1 and 2, so you understand where that comes from. Because again, we might ask if we're just reading through the New Testament, why was the child presented in this way? Well, again, it goes back to the law. Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So, Jesus, of course, we know he had at least four brothers. 
He had at least two sisters, we see in the New Testament. But this was the firstborn, as we read in our scripture reading this morning. So he was dedicated to the Lord. In Exodus 13, also it says in verses 11 through 15, And it shall be, when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he swear unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it thee, that thou shalt set apart unto the Lord all that openeth the matrix, and every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the male shall be the Lord's. And every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand the Lord brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all that openeth the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. So there is the law. Of course, this was a teaching tool that the children would see what, what is this, and then that would give opportunity again for the parents to give the history of Israel and the history of what God has done. As all the firstborn males were killed in the land of Egypt at that last tenth plague, now we offer, we dedicate these firstborn to the Lord. And Joseph and Mary were obedient in doing that, dedicating the life of the child to God. We're not going to read it, but in the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, we see that five shekels of silver was paid as the redemption price here when the firstborn was dedicated. All the tribes had to do this except the tribe of Levi because they were dedicated to the priesthood. But you see this here, Joseph and Mary, although it's not mentioned that they paid the five shekels, we assume obviously that they did. Because if you look later on in the chapter at verse 39, it says, And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. So they were faithful to every aspect here of the law of God. And then verse 24 again, we see, And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Again, that was the ending of the purification process of Mary. We read about that in Leviticus 12, but let me read for you one more verse that I didn't, verse 6. It says, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest. So here we see that offering. They gave the offering that would have been for a more poor couple, a couple that had less money, and so that is what they did. But they were faithful, and they were obedient when they offered the sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So here we see the circumcision, the naming, the purification process, and the ded dedication of Jesus to the Lord. The firstborn was all 100% obedience to these commandments that they were given in the law. So, brethren, when we consider this first part of the sermon, the birth of Christ, the shepherds, the complete obedience to the law of the Lord, and concerning the birth of Jesus Christ, we should be full of praise to God for giving his son to redeem us from our sins. And we should be obviously encouraged to be faithful, just as Joseph and Mary were, to the law. And, of course, those ceremonial aspects of the law have now been fulfilled in Christ but yet their faithfulness to the commands of God should be an encouragement to us. Now, secondly, in light of all this, let's speak for a little bit about Christmas. And when I'm talking about Christmas here in this context, I'm talking about as a holiday celebration on the date of December the 25th. First of all, brethren, consider this with me for a moment. We never see the church in the New Testament celebrating the birth of Christ at a particular time of the year. We know that. Secondly, we also do not find the church celebrating the birth of Christ at a particular time of the year in the earliest times of the church after the New Testament was completed. You look back to church history, simply not there. 
By the time we get to the mid-third century, so about the year 250, there is some discussion about it, and a possible date is given near the end of December. Yet, there would be controversy between the churches of the West and the churches of the East concerning the date. For example, the East debated, the East and the West disagreed about a lot of things. They disagreed about the time that the resurrection of Jesus should be celebrated as that was beginning to be recognized. And then they argued about this matter. The church in the East believed in January 6th. The church in the West was celebrating a little bit more in later December. And still to this day, many churches in the East actually recognize the birth of Christ as January 6th. There is controversy, though, concerning the date, since Scripture does not contain commands for us to celebrate this event at a particular time and because no date is ever mentioned in Scripture. Some argue for the springtime. Others argue that Jesus was born in the fall. And some for a late date in December or early in January. And they get these arguments for when they look at the courses of the priests and the records that we have of that, and knowing where, who Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, uh, what course he belonged to, and the time of year that he would have ministered, and then the time it would have taken for Elizabeth to have the child, and the months after that for Jesus to have the child. And they calculate anywhere from late December to early January. Nevertheless, even if that's the case, if that's a valid argument, we cannot guarantee that we know the actual date, whether December 25th or January 6th. God in his providence has not seen fit to reveal that to us. There are also arguments made that much of what people do during the Christmas celebration was actually brought over from paganism and, you could say, baptized or Christianized, and that none of this has anything to do with biblical instruction at all. Let me just give to you some quotations, just so you're not hearing it from me, but from very adequate scholars concerning this matter. First, I'm going to quote to you from Nick Needham in his volume one of 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. So we're talking a very erudite church historian from the UK. Listen to what he says. Quote, the Emperor Aurelian, in particular, tried to make sun worship fashionable by building in Rome a great temple to the unconquered sun in the year 274. People began celebrating the 25th of December as the sun's birthday, from which we derive the festival of Christmas. The fact that sun worship involved believing in one supreme God made it easier for many people to pass over from worshiping God through the sun, S-U-N, to worshiping him through the sun, S-O-N. This had its dangers. Some converts to Christianity continued to practice sun worship as well, end quote. Then later on, in page 196 of his volume one on church history, he writes this, quote, the celebration of Christmas on the 25th of December also became an established practice in the fourth century. It is first mentioned in Western worship in the year 336. So we're talking about 300 years after the birth of Christ. The date was the pagan festival of the birth of the sun taken over and Christianized by the church. The customs of the old Roman festival of Saturnalia on the 17th through the 21st of December, when candles were lit, parties held and gifts exchanged also became attached to Christmas. And then he gives a list of the different dates that are important concerning this. He talks about this is about the time where January 6th was accepted in the east. The 25th is accepted in the city of Constantinople in 379. The 25th was accepted throughout Egypt by the year 431. And it was accepted in the Palestinian countries in the 6th century. So there's kind of a timeline. But amongst the Armenians, not Armenians, Armenians, uh, still to this day it is celebrated on January 6th. So that's Nick Needham. Let me give you another source. Nelson's Encyclopedia, this is a Christian encyclopedia, conservative one, page 518. Quote, the fact that Christmas as we know it is a rather modern innovation 
Christ's birthday was not celebrated until more than 300 years had gone by, years in which accurate birth records, if there were any, had been lost. The early church remembered and celebrated Christ's resurrection from the dead, which was more important, but the church was slow in adding Christmas to its list of dates worthy of recognition. So why have we celebrated Christ's birthday on December 25th? A pagan festival, Natalis Invicti, was a boisterous Roman affair celebrated on December 25th when the sun was in its winter solstice. Worshippers of the Roman sun god enthusiastically pulled their Christian friends into the parting. By AD 386, church leaders set up the celebration of Christ Mass, meaning Christ's coming, so that Christians could join the festival activities without bending to paganism. And then they say, after the Roman Empire dissolved, Christians continued the December 25th birthday custom. By that time, December 25th seemed more fitting than any other date. And then finally, a third source, and this comes from the MacArthur New Testament commentary in the Gospel of Luke, and obviously MacArthur does allow for some Christmas things, but I just want to give you this information from that source. Quote, exactly when the early church settled on December 25th is not known. The first recorded reference to that date as the day of Christ's birth is found in the writings of Sextus Julius Africanus. He was a historian. Early in the third century, the earliest evidence of the church celebrating Christmas on December 25th comes from the 4th century manuscript known as the chronography or calendar of 354. According to that document, Christian Christmas was being celebrated on December the 25th by the church at Rome no later than AD 336. The date was gradually adopted by the church as a whole over the next several centuries. Why the church finally decided to celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th is also not known for certain. Some believe that it was to offer a Christian alternative to the popular pagan holiday known as the birthday of the unconquered son, which was celebrated on December 25th. That festival was inaugurated late in the 3rd century to honor several sun gods, chief of which was Mithras, whose worship poised a serious threat to the Christian church. That was Mithraism. Others hold that the date was chosen because it is nine months after March 25th, the day that some in the early church believed, without biblical warrant, was the date of Jesus' conception. Over the centuries, the trappings now commonly associated with Christmas gradually seeped into the celebration. Gift-giving was an integral part of the pagan winter festivals and became firmly associated with Christmas by the end of the 18th century. Mistletoe was sacred to the ancient Druids, who attributed to it both magical and medicinal powers for his generosity and kindness. According to one legend, he rescued three daughters of a poor family from being forced into prostitution by providing dowries for them so they could marry. After doing their laundry, the girls hung their stockings by the fireplace to dry. That night, Nicholas tossed a small bag of gold coins into each girl's stocking. The custom of hanging Christmas stockings derives in part from that story. Settlers from the Netherlands, where Nicholas is popular, brought this tradition with them to America. Nicholas's Dutch name, Sinterklaas, or Sinterklaas, eventually became anglicized into Santa Claus. So this is all a brief history, brethren, of where this came from, uh, concerning what the practices were in the early church, what tradition, traditions became incorporated into the church, and some of the other aspects as well. Because of this mix with pagan elements, many Christians in history abstained from the holiday. Now, we want to give a little bit of a warning here because obviously pagans do a lot of things that aren't necessarily wrong, right? Pagans drive cars. Pagans brush their teeth. Pagans wash their hands. And does that mean that we can't do something because pagans do it? Well, of course not. I mean, pagans just do that as people. But at the same time, we do have to be very cautious about bringing in elements of worship into, that, that come from paganism into the worship of the true and living God. If you would, look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 12 for a moment. I want to read verses 29 through 32 where the children of Israel were warned about this very thing. Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 32. 
And when the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them and dwellest in their land, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hateth, have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. So what does the Lord say? He says, don't look at how the pagans are worshiping their gods and bring that into the worship of me. What I command you, do that. Don't take away from it and don't add to it. So although pagans do many things that are not necessarily sinful, that we do as well, we have to be extremely cautious about borrowing from their religions and bringing that into our religious practices if there is no scripture to back that up. That brings us to our third and last point, which is the subject of the regulative principle. The subject of the regulative principle has to do with how the local church is organized and regulated, as well as how our worship is directed. And we speak of worship again. We're not just talking about the songs. We're talking about our prayers. We're talking about our ordinances. We're talking about our preaching, our reading of the scriptures, and so forth. In reference to such worship, the doctrine of the regulative principle teaches that the public worship of God should include only those elements which were instituted by command or example in the Holy Scriptures. The Bible itself contains everything that God requires for worship, and any additions to it are prohibited. An easy way of stating the principle is that whatever is commanded is right, and whatever is not commanded is wrong. Now, let me give you a little test. You can test yourself kind of to see where you're at on this. And I'm sorry if it seems like I was just reading verbatim there. I was. I was reading my own quote from that little thing I wrote out there on the regulative principle. So, but test yourself on this for a moment. Do you hold to the regulative principle, or do you hold to what is called the normative principle? Let me describe to you what the normative principle is. The normative principle has been held to by Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches as well as Lutheran, Anglican, Methodist, and many other modern evangelicals. Martin Luther held to it. Many of the bishops of the Church of England held to it. That's why these churches still do to this day. Three things. Number one, the normative principle says what God has commanded must be done in worship. Okay? Number two, what God has forbidden ought not to be done. And number three, Additional elements are permitted which God has not expressly forbidden. Okay? Those are the three aspects of the normative principle. Do you hold to that? Or do you hold to the regulative principle? I'm going to give you the three truths concerning that. Okay? Compare yourself. Number one, what God has commanded must be done. We have agreement. Two, what God has forbidden ought not to be done. So you see, so far, the regulative principle and the normative principle agree. It's on that third point where there's disagreements. And here's what the regulative principle says. No additional elements are permitted. If not commanded, they are wrong. So there's the difference. The normative principle says additional elements are permitted if God has not forbidden them. The regulative principle says if God has not commanded them at all, they are not allowed. You see the difference between the two. So where would you stand? The normative principle or the regulative principle? Just test yourself in that because that will determine much of what you think on all these things. The regulative principle was held to by John Calvin of Swit in Switzerland, John Knox in Scotland, and John Hooper in England. It was adopted by the Puritans, and the Puritans didn't have anything to do with Christmas because for them that smacked way too much of Roman Catholicism. You can also see the regulative principle in the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 London Baptist Confession as well. So this is, 
if you're talking about old school, old time reform doctrine, the regulative principle is there. Let me just read to you from the London Baptist Confession, chapter 22, just so you see this historical statement concerning this. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. In our own statement of doctrine in this church, you can read it on the internet, we have this. Reverent corporate worship is not optional for the church. It is one of its very purposes and manifests on earth the reality of the heavenly assembly. Therefore, the regulative principle in worship is the proper practice of the local church. You even see it on the bulletin sometimes. It says our church, independent Reformed Baptist Church. Well, you go back to Reformed Baptist doctrine, they held to the regulative principle. So that's why we have that in our statement of doctrine as well. Let me read to you one more. The 1647 Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 109 asks, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? Answer. All devising, counseling, commanding, using, and otherwise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself, making any representation of God, of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly, in our mind, or outwardly, in any kind of image or likeness of any creature at all, all worshiping of any kind of image, or God, it, or through worshiping God through the image, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken upon our own and received by tradition from others, whether under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense. So that was the statement in the Westminster Catechism concerning regulative principle and the worship of God. Now, in light of that history, let's just look briefly at some scriptures and the regulative principle. Don't have time to go through all of it, obviously, this morning, but let me just mention a few things. Obviously, we know in scripture we are forbidden to either add or subtract from God's commands. Again, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Deuteronomy 4.2, ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So, in order to keep the commandments, don't add and don't take away, or else you're not going to be faithful in keeping the commandments given. We see the principle also at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Don't add to the words of this prophecy, don't take away. Also, and I'm not going to read these, but you can look at them later if you want. Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10, and Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 17, clearly forbids worshiping God through an image of any kind. We also see in Scripture, in the construction of the tabernacle, which was so important because it foreshadowed New Testament truths, Exodus 25 and verse 40 says, And look that thou make them after the pattern which was shewed thee in the mount. So think about that. Don't take away from anything that I've told you goes in this construction. And don't add anything to it according to your own imagination. Only as I have commanded. Also, <clears throat> we see that we are not to add any false forms of worship. I read earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. Don't ask how the nations are worshiping their gods and bringing those ways into the worship of me, God said. And then what did he say right afterward? What I command you, do it, don't add, don't take away. So that's what he says. But let me also mention Jeremiah 7.31, Jeremiah 19.5, Jeremiah 32.35. We read about how the children of Israel brought in the worship of Molech into the worship of Yahweh. And it was not only the sacrificing of the children which was rebuked, but the bringing in of false worship at all was rebuked as well. In John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, you know the conversation that Jesus had with the woman at the well. And if you knew anything about the Samaritans, they had sort of a quasi-faith that they had sort of tried to copy from the Jews, but they had their own priesthood, their own temple, and their own worship. And what did Jesus say about them? 
Ye worship, ye know not what. Because they had so many false forms of worship. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, as well as verses 8 and 9, Jesus talks about traditions invented by men which had polluted the worship of God. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. Also, we see God through Moses regulated how the old covenant people were to worship him. Christ, through his apostles, regulated how his churches in the new covenant were to function and how they were to worship also. We see this all over in the New Testament. Think of it. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Public prayers are directed in how they were to be conducted by Paul in verse 8 of that chapter. Verses 9 through 15 of that chapter, Paul regulates how the women were to conduct themselves in the gathered assembly. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, you can read there about bishops and deacons and how those offices were regulated in the church as well. This all had to do with behaving yourself properly in the house of God, according to chapter 3 and verse 15. You see how this was all regulated. We weren't free just to invent our own offices or our own rules. Nothing. It was all regulated for us. The apostles who were Christ's messengers enforced his regulations in the worship of his churches, which became the standard in all the assemblies. I think at times when we read through scripture, it's so easy for us just to read over this. Uh, Let me just give you an example. I know in my own early Christian walk, the fellowships that I was involved with always had only one pastor. And as you read through scripture again and again, you don't even think about it when you see the churches were always led by a group of elders. You see, your eyes kind of have to be open to that. We can read through these regulations oftentimes in the New Testament and not even realize it. For example, listen to Acts 16 and verse 4 concerning Paul and Timothy. As they went through the cities... They delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. That's the Acts 15 gathering. So what did they do after the council? Church to church to church, and the churches were regulated according to the way that the Holy Spirit had led that council. Listen to Paul's ministry, 1 Corinthians 4.17. He says, My ways which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. It was to be the same. 1 Corinthians 7, 17, As God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all churches. You see, the churches were regulated. Christ, through the apostles, regulated the churches. 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Again, it's the same in all the churches. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, 33 and 34. Listen, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And finally, 1 Corinthians 16, 1. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. What I have told those churches, you do it too. So we see all over in the New Testament, the worship and the way that the churches were ordered was all regulated just like under the old covenant as well. Now, this is all consistent, brethren, when we think of other doctrines in the word. And I'm not going to go deep into this again because of, our, because of the sake of time, but let me just mention them. This is all consistent with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, if we really believe in the sovereignty of God. Because if God is sovereign, that means he has the right and the authority to dictate how he is worshipped. We're not just free to invent things on our own or bring other things in. Secondly, this is consistent with the doctrine of man's total depravity. Because if man is totally depraved, he is incapable of deciding for himself how he is to approach God. He needs needs God's revelation. You see, general revelation is not enough. That's why you have false religions in the world. You also need special revelation to guide us concerning how we can be made right with God, how we can be forgiven of our sins, and how we are to rightly approach God and worship him. Third, the doctrine of sola scriptura must also be considered, that is, scripture alone. If scripture is the infallible guide in all matters of faith, life, doctrine, and practice, we are never to try to reinvent the wheel concerning how we are to worship God. Finally, number four, when you consider the doctrine of the liberty of our conscience, that means God alone is Lord of the conscience in what we believe and in how we behave. No one can bind 
your conscience or bring it or bring into the corporate worship of God anything that would be additions to scripture and seek to bind your conscience to that. We, no man has that authority, you see. Only God is Lord over the conscience. So when you consider God's sovereignty, when you consider man's depravity, when you consider sola scriptura, when you consider the liberty of our conscience, we are not allowed to add or to take away from the worship of God. What's so beautiful about this is it's, it's odd how in our modern day, when you speak about the law of God and the regulations of God, I think we've just been trained this way. Oftentimes we think legalism, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's opposed to legalism. You see, legalism is bringing other things in and binding the conscience. But directing believers to obey the law of God and the regulations in Scripture is the exact opposite. It's freeing. Listen to Psalm 119, verses 44 and 45. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. There is great freedom in simply being obedient to the laws of God. Now, that's the birth of Christ, Christmas, and the regulated principle. I hope that's been helpful. Let's just have a few practical points before we partake of the supper. Number one, we have briefly looked at some history in this message. We have brought in different historical writings and some historical information for us. And I think, brethren, what's really practical about this is when we consider any subject, we should all see the benefits of looking back into the past to understand our own influences and why we do what we do. I'm sure just none of us have ever been influenced by anything outside of Scripture and bringing it into our Christian faith, right? Guilty right here, probably a million times. And so I, I can remember even listening to a church history class, and a woman once asked the teacher, did these people even know the gospel? And he said, of course they knew the gospel. Well, how could they have done these things? He said, you're failing to understand the power that tradition has over the human mind. And they would probably, and I would just add this, they could look at us and say, do those people even know the gospel? Because there's so many things that affect us that we're just unaware. Of course we know the gospel. But the issue is, is we always need to go back to the word and ask, how must I believe and how must I live? So when you look into the past, you can get such great insights concerning the failures of others and the wisdom of others as well. It helps us to know our context and it helps us to gain insight. Spurgeon, pink, came out very strong. I'm really soft in the way that I'm talking about these subjects. If they were here, they, they, just, they, they just fire blasted this. Did you know that in early America, in some parts, you would be fined if you celebrated Christmas on December 25th? If you, if you weren't working your job on December 25th? That's stunning. But that's because they held so strongly to the regulative principle, and they didn't want Roman Catholic elements of worship coming into the United States. It's quite interesting. So those things just help gain us a little insight. That things that we do haven't always been done that way. Psalm 77 verse 5 says, I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I hope we all can say that. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7 says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. This is so practical. There's so, it's so practical to know those who have gone before us. And it's so practical then, brethren, for us to give that to our children because they're going to need it. Because the more and more they're being brought up in a culture with an anti-biblical worldview, they're going to have to know what things were like before and how we got to where we are now. If they're just in this bubble and they don't understand anything before or what it looks like might come after, they're just more prone to deception. So that's very important. Secondly, may Scripture always be our guide. We profess sola scriptura, right? But we all need to seek to practice Sola Scriptura. And God's law must be our standard. Remember what we looked at with Mary and Joseph. What was the standard? 
when they went to for Mary's purification, circumcised the child, giving the name to the child, offering the sacrifice. That just wasn't tradition that they picked up. That was complete obedience to the law of God. So scripture must also be our guide. Number three, we've given this message about the birth of Christ, the Christmas holiday, regulated principle. Now in this church, one thing we're not going to do is the elders aren't going to come and search everybody's homes to see what are you doing on December 24th and 25th and so forth. Well, maybe go to the half-ips and make sure you see what Brother Keith is doing there if there's packages not filled up in their basement. But nevertheless, uh, this, you know the information. This, these are matters that, as responsible Christians, that you need to make your own decisions on. It should never affect our fellowship or salvation. Of course, it doesn't affect our salvation. But when it comes to the regulative principle, one of the things that we have thought best as elders in this church is not to add and not to take away from the worship of God. We think it is best to not have any additions, Christmas services, Christmas programs, simply because we cannot bring things in according to our own authority. We don't have that authority. We have to submit to God's authority. That's why we don't have trees and so forth. We, we simply can't do that. Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2, just for a moment, just briefly. I just want to briefly look at verses 18 through 23. There was some problems here in the Colossian church, some Gnostic influences and some bringing into the worship and practice of God's people that was not biblical. Paul writes, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, Intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered, and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using? after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Notice Paul here lists ordinances such as taste not, touch not, handle not. And he also mentions the worshiping of angels in verses 18 and 21. After listing, listing these practices, he tells the Colossians that such things have indeed a show of wisdom. And then he uses the phrase, will worship. A show of wisdom in will worship, humility, neglecting of the body. Notice that such additions to God's, God's worship were classified as will worship. That can also be translated as self-made religion or as self-imposed worship. Any additions to the worship of God in the church. Such worship is condemned by the apostle and he was moved by the Holy Spirit to write what he did. That's an important principle there. Self-imposed religion. Self-made religion. Self-imposed worship. Such we are not to do. So we see the Old and New Testaments, the regulative principle. The normative principle then wrongly asserts that what has not been prohibited in Scripture is permitted in the corporate worship of the church. Not, not the case. Finally, brethren, fourth and last point. When we think of Christ's birth and why he came, we should always rejoice, no matter what time of the year it is. I mean, think about this. This was God leaving all his glory and entering into his creation, willing to go and bear the sins of his people on the cross to take the full punishment for their sins, the debt being fully paid, so that we as sinful, rebellious creatures could be saved from the penalty of sin and ultimately its power and its very presence. That is the glorious news of the gospel. Yes, we're not commanded to memorialize a birthday, but think of it. We're going to do it here now. We are to memorialize his death. We remember that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. You know, brethren, have you ever seen that tract, Mary's Command? 
It's a tract for Roman Catholics, and it says that there's only one command that Mary gave in Scripture. She never commanded us to pray the rosary. She never commanded us to pray to her at all. She commanded and said one thing about Jesus to those at the wedding at Cana. Whatever he says to do, do it. Think about that. In the same way, when we think of what Jesus has told us to do, he hasn't told us to memorialize his birthday, but he has told us to remember him in his broken body and shed blood and to do that until he comes again. So, brethren, it is so important as we partake of the table to remember until he comes, we remember him in his death and in his resurrection and that he is coming again. And until that time, we preach the gospel, we stand for righteousness, we live for what is important, to edify the brethren, to minister to one another, and to spread his word throughout the world until he comes again. May that be so of each of us, and may we remember that as we come to the table. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we have now looked at the word, and we just pray that it would be a great blessing to each one of us as we go to the scriptures. And Lord, we thank you for what you have revealed to us. Had you not given your revelation, we would all be lost in darkness. We would not know how to worship you. We would not know you rightly. We would know that you are there. It is obvious from the creation, from your great works of providence, that God is, that he is powerful, that he is loving, that he is merciful, that he is just and righteous, but we would not know you properly. We could not have our sins forgiven. We could not approach you rightly. So, Lord, we thank you for the revelation and that your Holy Spirit accompanies that revelation for those whom you draw 